0: All right, good morning, guys. How are we feeling today? All right, so let's do this very quickly. Here's the first question, first person to raise their hand that I can point out that you can tell me. The three Ds from yesterday. Uh, You right there, yep, maroon shirt. Dependent, I like the teamwork there. I won't cancel that out. Here you go, my friend. This is for you, if you can catch. All right, so almost. I'm going to take the D that was replaced for the D I couldn't think of, and I'm going to begin. So the fourth D that my mind drew a blank on was delicate. Sheep are delicate creatures. The word delicate, of course, could be defined as skittish, They fright easy. We are like those sheep. We're frail. We are fragile. And that replacement D, which you nailed it, I got something for you later. I'm going to begin with that D. That D works. Whoever told me that D yesterday, sheep are also dirty. They find themselves in certain situations that they get their fleece muddy or dirty. So some of the lyrics that were sang yesterday, I want to begin with, with that D that's dirty. And it's this, God truly loves us where he finds us, but he does not leave us the way he found us. He takes us out of the mud and he brings us into his love. Psalm 40, verse two, it says, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, that's the muddy clay. He set my feet upon a rock, and he established my steps. Now consider as sheep, we go astray. Here's another verse, Isaiah 53 verse six actually says this, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now therein lies our nature. We stray away from our shepherd. We move at our own Pace. We think we have everything figured out. So when, when we stray, we end up in pig pens in the mud. We end up in thorn bushes. We end up in very dangerous situations, a precipice, a cliff. Now, they say in certain regions where shepherding is still a common occupation, that it is not uncommon for a shepherd to happen upon his flock where the sheep are literally one by one, walking straight off a cliff. Now, the sad reality is that the first several hundred, literally thousands of sheep, hundred would go over and plummet to their death, while the others, falling behind them, cushioned on top of those who went before them. Interesting. Like that is actually case studies on how many sheep that walked over a cliff To their own demise. And I say, wow, look at that. That's us left to our own devices, left to our own decisions. We will literally follow somebody right off a cliff, right to our own demise, our own danger, our own devastation. And yet we have the shepherd. The second part of this prophecy from Isaiah says, And the Lord has laid on him, this is Jesus, the good shepherd, the iniquity of us all. Did you see what just happened there? we go astray because of sin and sin separates us from him. Yet God intervened and separated sin from us. You see how this is such an amazing, powerful principle. Sin separates us from God and then God enter, intervened and separated sin from us. Jesus says as a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, the good shepherd leads, never pushes or prods from behind. He goes out before the sheep Jesus led by example. Jesus' self-sacrificial life is the perfect example for the Christian. And God's plan was to lay upon Jesus all of our iniquity. That's why David in Psalm 23 could make a statement like, the Lord is not a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, with that one word, my, it's possessive. Faith is possessive. You have to make a decision to claim, or I often use the word, own your faith. When the Lord becomes your shepherd, it becomes personal. Remember I said, and I'm going to continue until I pound it into your brains. I knew Psalm 23 by memory. It took tragedy for for me to get to know the shepherd of Psalm 23 intimately, where I no longer just quote it, the Lord is my shepherd. I know it. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. I shall not want is declarative. David saying, I shall not want as a declaration. In other words, I lack nothing. Because of my faith in Christ, I lack no good thing. Remember Psalm 84:11, no good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, if you have not been given it by God, it's because it's not good for you in God's eyes. I shall not want is also a decision. It's not only a declaration, it's a decision. We make a decision to know that this world has nothing for us. So I'm going to say, I shall not want because I do not want anything unless Christ has given it to me. We covered two ways the Lord provides. The shepherd, of course, in Psalm 23, verse two, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now that idea was a shepherd knows what's best for the skittish or delicate sheep, And if they don't feel comfortable, secure, if they are too concerned about how they're going to find themselves eating, they won't eat. It's like they're so anxious, even though grass is right beneath them. So the the shepherd, one by one, he goes over top of his sheep and he with firm but gentle pressure makes the sheep lie down. And I love that because I said the three S's are often the way the Lord makes us lie down. Remember that one note. How can he make me? He can make you because he made you. And because he made you, he knows what's best for you. So that firm and gentle pressure, whether be it by a setback, why did that one opportunity, that door that closed, God says, well, it's a setback because I want you to see me as the door, not the opportunity, sometimes a sickness. Now, Dr. Charles Stanley would write this idea about he was moving so fast in ministry. And I can relate to this. I travel a lot. My wife and I, I speak a lot. Often I get this sore throat because I'm not sleeping at night with a newborn, but I'm also pushing every time I present and speak and teach. And it's my honor to do so. So if I have a sore throat throughout a week at camp, so be it. But the idea is when the sickness settles in, am I leaning in to God or am I trusting in my own flesh? Dr. Charles Stanley said it was the probably most relentless time of his ministry and he came down with a sickness. It sidelined him. There was nothing he could do. Rushed to the hospital and it was right there in the hospital bed as he's recovering, they're pumping him with all types of fluids. He literally heard in his heart, the Lord say, you've done so much work for me, but when's the last time you've done work with me? And it always stuck with me because here I can be doing work for God but I never take the moment to check in with God that makes sure I'm doing work with him, right? So that sickness sometimes gets us to rely more on God than we would otherwise. And of course, then there's solitude. And I use relationships as the example. Sometimes God will break you up with a significant other, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. And here's the reality. It's most likely because we've made that person more of God than he is. We've sacrificed on the altar of our relationship. We've allowed the relationship to be an idol in our lives. We bow to it. It is what consumes us. And God says, okay, well, because you've made him or her more important than me, then I'm going to allow it to kind of disintegrate. And that doesn't mean that you won't come back on the other side, but each person goes on their individual journey with the good shepherd. You have to trust the outcome to God. So then we entered into still waters. Remember, raging waters or moving waters. The sheep, skittish, delicate, they would not drink because the rushing waters were not only hazardous to them. Remember, so fragile they are, so dumb they are as they stick their head into the water. It takes them in and literally they go down the stream. They go top heavy and they eventually drown. And the shepherd knew that. So he would lead them where? Beside the waters of rest. Still waters. Psalm forty-six, ten. Be still and know that I am God. Those two words, be still, tattooed on my inner forearm, but I prefer that they're tattooed in my heart. Those two words, when I got in trouble, of course, I knew that I shamed my family. My mother and my father, my father, a law enforcement official. My mother, of course, she gave birth to me. I was her youngest son. So every time I saw her and she knew what lied ahead for me, I could see in her eyes how devastated she was. It broke her. The Lord gave me this verse, Psalm 46, 10, be still. And I would actually write it on my mom's cell phone. I would take her cell phone and I would put it on the screen as a screensaver. I'd write on a notepad and I would stick it to the refrigerator. I would text it to her, be still. And I had no idea how those two words in that time period before I went to prison ministered to my mother She reported or testified after the fact that God, using those two words, was reminding her that he is in control. Be still, soul, for I am God. I know better. I have a plan. I am sovereign. I knew each day of your life before you were born. There's a Bible verse for that. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. We often talk about the first part of that verse, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knit me together in mommy's womb. But how about verse 16? And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, comma, when as yet there were none of them. I love that. In other words, my entire calendar, my life, from birth to death, God has written a script each day perfectly ordained for me. God saw me as an infant, wearing a onesie. God saw me growing and wearing a soccer uniform, excelling. God saw me wearing a Christian uniform in grade school. God saw me wearing a professional soccer uniform with my name on it. And God saw me wearing a Department of Corrections jumpsuit. Those days were already written. And when we come to that conclusion, you know what enters a soul that recognizes not only as God Firmly but gently made me lie down. Not only has he perfectly led me to still waters, his word. You know what happens in that soul? Verse 3. He restores my soul. Restoration. Every interaction that we have, guys, we leave a piece of our soul. Your soul can be defined as your inward animating Essence. Your soul is your emotional man or woman. Your soul is your intellect, what you learn. Your soul is your will, your decisions. And it's tucked between your flesh and your spirit. And we know whatever is fed more, flesh or spirit, will dictate soul. And the reason we struggle in our soul is because we are often feeding our flesh. But the moment we shift that and begin to feed our spirit in the word, in lies. Peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, Paul would write to the church at Philippi. Guards your heart and mind, guards like a sentinel, like a soldier who is literally sent to secure a post. Restoration in our souls. In ministry, I interact with people all week long, whether through email, text message, whether through meetings, I leave a piece of my soul in every interaction. It's exhausting. I would not have the energy or the passion or enthusiasm to present to you on a morning like this had I not spent time with my good shepherd this morning alone. Replenishing, refueling, refilling. He gave me rest in my soul this morning so I can pour out on you. But if we don't come back To his word, if we don't come back to the good shepherd, he can't restore our soul, which is scattered out. At at times, our soul is sore. And we got a sore soul in here, bruised and battered from relationships, from interactions, from circumstances. Your, Your soul is wounded. And that's why we must have ears to hear our good shepherd say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Come to me. Three words. Notice he didn't say, walk to me, run to me, just come. Sometimes you can't walk, you got to crawl. Sometimes you can't move at all, but your spirit says, I need to go. And he says, come. Notice he said, come to me. He didn't say, come to church, which is good. He didn't say, come to youth group, which is good. He didn't say, come to counseling, which is good. But all those mediums, if they don't drive you to Christ, are not good. Come to me, all you who what? All you who labor, all those of you that are weary. That word labor is the same word in Exodus that is used with the Israelites in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And the Egyptian Pharaoh would tax the Israelite people by putting on them, guess what? Burdens to bear, making them labor. They baked bricks in the blistering hot sun. They were responsible for building up the monuments and the buildings in Egypt. They were slaves. It's the word labor. Now, let's make the connection practically. I labor in the world. I try to get ahead in the world. I try to get more stuff in the world, more possessions, more material goods and gains. And I'm laboring. And at the end of the proverbial day, I'm exhausted. I realize I thought I was working in the world, but the world was actually working me. Tired. Anybody tired in here? Tired of trying to figure out life on your own? Tired. See, what happens is the world offers solutions, but the world can never fix the soul's problems. Rehabilitation, behavior modification, counseling and therapy, medication. Again, all those could be good mediums to help bring the soul to a place, but if it lacks Christ, it's actually lacking healing, restoration, resuscitation. The Lord heals the soul. The Lord restores the soul. Jesus said, come to me all who are laboring and all those who are what? Heavy laden. That word heavy laden is used by the prophet Isaiah to talk about the people were heavy laden in iniquity. So while the world works us and sin weighs on us, And we got caught up in that one sin, secret sin, private sin. Nobody knows about it but you and God. And every single time you engage it, you not only feel shame rush your soul afterwards, but it weighs on you. And then we beat ourselves up and then we go right back into that vicious cycle. And the Lord's like, when are you going to come to me? The world works you. Sin weighs on you. I wait for you. Come to me. Okay, Jesus, I'm here. Now what? Take my yoke upon you. Jesus was a carpenter. You know that? His stepfather, Joseph, was a tecton. You know what a tecton is, right? There were two type of carpenters. There were framers. They'd come do the blunt of the work in the beginning. Then there were finishers. The finisher was the craftsman. They would put the unique touches on the work. It is said traditionally that Jesus, he would actually build stools and chairs and tables. And even it's said that he made yokes. A yoke was like a harness that attached two oxen together so they could plow the field. But interestingly, there was always a lead ox and an assistant ox. The lead ox took on the blunt of the work, a majority of the weight. The assistant ox would simply be in the yoke and go with the flow. I love that because we are the assistant ox. We get into the yoke with Jesus. He pushes all the weight He takes all the burden, and I simply go with the flow. His yoke is his word. You know, there's an analogy, you might have heard it before, a woman in a dream, she wakes into a warehouse, and of course, it's filled with crosses. She's complaining about her cross. She wondered why it felt the way it felt. She wanted a new cross, and there she is in this warehouse. She happens upon a cross that was gold-plated, adorned by jewels and gems, And she said, certainly that's my new cross. But when she went to pick it up, the weight of the cross crushed her. See, she realized, though it looked good, it didn't feel good. And it wasn't for her. Now, I digress to say, when you see somebody else maybe plated with gold or adorned with gems and jewels, and you want what they have, you have no idea the weight of what they're bearing. She saw another cross. It had flowers. It was beautiful. She said, that's my new cross. She went to pick it up. But what she did not see beneath the flowers were thorns. And the thorns pierced her back. She dropped the cross, realizing again, it may look like somebody's life is blossoming and flourishing. And it is. But beneath those flowers are thorns. And the pain has led them to be that type of person. You have no idea what people have been through. To envy somebody else's lot in life or what they're bearing is a foolish thing to do. She comes around the corner, she sees a perfect, normal, regular cross. Certainly, this is my new cross. She picks it up, it fits her shoulders perfectly. Then she realized, that new cross was actually her old cross. It was the cross she came in with, but now she had a new perspective and an inscription on the cross that she never realized or saw before. And it said, my grace is sufficient, for you. You understand? Jesus said, Take my yoke. You know why? That yoke is custom fitted. Jesus would custom fit the yoke to fit the back of the oxen. You'd have to squeeze in and be uncomfortable. The yoke fits perfectly. See, this illustration Jesus uses, I'm using as a link to connect this morning's devotional with tonight's message. Because tonight we're going to talk about the importance and the inspiration of God's word alone. The importance of spending time in God's word alone. Devotional time, not just as a group. Devotional time by myself, in my private place, with my good shepherd. What does that yoke do? It says it gives rest. How can I trust him? Because Jesus said the only autobiographical statement about himself in Matthew 11. Did you know that? Every other time he said, I'm the light of the world. Okay. Imagery, I'm the vine. Imagery. I'm the good shepherd, imagery. I'm the door, imagery. I'm the resurrection, imagery. Here he says, I am gentle and humble. Jesus applies two characteristics to himself. And he says that yoke for you is easy. It's the word custom fitted. My burden is light. In other words, my burden is a blessing. What I'm asking you to bear. So he restores our soul. Here we have our soul brought back to order. And when our souls brought back to order, verse three, restoration, we then have the proper perception for direction. Did you get that? Restoration, new soul, restored, proper perception for direction. That's why he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. I'm kind of kind of edit the paths of righteousness for a sheep. The shepherd would lead so many paths they would take in the vastness of a valley or a field or a mountainous region. But there are various paths that over time, the sheep knew that those were safe passages. In other words, even though the shepherd was leading, if the sheep got familiar with the passage they've been on before, they felt comfortable and secure to go on that path. I call that a habit. The sheep so dumb, yet so wise to be familiar with the path that they had been on before. But these paths of righteousness for us, guys, look at me. They're habits of righteousness. How do you form a habit? They say it takes at least 21 days to form a habit. Habitually, our responses, our reactions, our attitude should be righteousness, right standing, right talking, right living. Not that that righteousness or that work is what gives us good favor with God. None of that. God's righteousness in us based on Jesus, is our favor with God. But because my faith works, my faith produces fruit, then I have righteous behavior. It's everything I talked about last night. Being unashamed of the gospel, right living before your peers. These paths of righteousness, how do we get to a point where we have habits of righteousness? Listen, we're gonna slip up. We're gonna mess up with our tongues. We're gonna have lapses of selfishness, lapses of judgment. We are going to go back to our flesh and respond accordingly. However, the more you spend time with God alone, the good shepherd, the more you spend time in prayer alone, the more you spend time in the word alone, habits begin to develop so much so that your old responses no longer consume you and there's new responses which is governed and guided by the Holy Spirit. Illustration. There was a guard in prison. He was a sergeant. I don't know why he hated me. He'd come down the housing unit, I'd be sitting on a stool just like this at a table with all my peers. Remember, several inmates gathering around God's word. And this sergeant would always come in, interrupt us, make fun of us, but he would direct the blunt of his comments and criticism at me. And here I am leading a Bible study and he's making it something laughable. He's literally saying, if God's so good and the typical, why are you in prison? Oh, mayor, you found God in prison, may or this, may or that. Making my faith a joke. You know, my my blood would boil. Of course, I have to submit to their authority, but my humanity, my flesh is flaring. I don't like to be treated that way. One time I'm in a sally port, and I'm literally standing there in line waiting for them to unlock the gate. And you get up against the wall so the officer can walk by and open the gate. And here comes that sergeant. He walks by every single person. He stops about an inch away from my face. And he begins to point at my face, making fun of me once again. You think you're something special, don't you, mayor? You this and that. He's going in on me. And I'm standing there. I'm gaining my composure. But look look at me. On the inside, in my heart, I am cursing him. He stops. They open the gate. We go in. All of my fellow inmates come up to me. I can't believe that. I've never seen anything like that. How were you able to keep your composure when he was pointing at your face? I would have knocked him out. I said, you don't understand. What you saw on the outside was not what was going on on the inside. In fact, I would try to explain to my fellow teammates, I failed at that situation. I was cursing him in my heart. I was struggling in my heart. I wished ill will upon this man. And you know what happened? The more I'd go into my private place with the word, with the good shepherd, he'd restore my soul, replenish me, and I would ask him to lead me into the habits of righteousness so that one time when the officer did the same thing in my face that I would respond with righteousness. And I finally got there and it took a while. I'll never forget it. He came in, he berated me, he belittled me, but you know what happened in my heart? I, f- I felt a shift. I felt sorry for this man. And I began to pray for his salvation. I began to develop a habit so instead of being so quick to respond in my flesh, the Lord gave me the mercy to respond in my spirit. That was a habit of righteousness. Not that I'm always going to respond that way, but it's called neural pathology. Neural pathology is when the brain is formed. You know there's actual paths in our brain. There're trails. Over time we develop trails in our brain based on behavior, ever wonder why somebody has an idiosyncrasy, a certain pattern, the certain way they respond or do things. It's because their brain has been inscribed by that behavior. It's the same thing. We watch pornographic images. They form passages in our brain. It's like a wild brush of trees. And then every single time you go down a certain path, It leaves a downtrodden way for when the other person behind you can follow. Anybody have a forest in their backyard or trees and as a kid you went down the same exact path through the woods and over time to this day there's an actual path that was formed. That's what happens in our brain the more we engage with behavior whether it's righteous behavior or unrighteous behavior. There is neuropathological paths in the brain and that's why we respond certain ways. I want the good shepherd who is the only one who knows the terrain of my brain to form it so that I have habits of righteousness. Why? Not for my sake. What does it say? For his sake, for his name's sake, for his glory, honor, and praise. When I was able to keep my composure in my heart and my exterior with that sergeant, it wasn't for me. It was for my God and his glory. It was for my testimony to reflect him. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now I'm going to start at the bottom and work my way up. The reason we have no fear in the valley, there are two qualifiers. Do you see them? The reason we have no fear is because we recognize God is near. You are with me. Write this down. You are with me equals having an awareness of God's thereness. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you recognize God is with you. And look at me God with us is not a feeling, God with us is a fact. Illustration Faith, fact, And feeling on a wall this size. Faith in the center, fact out front, feeling behind. As long as faith keeps his eyes on fact, no matter the gusts of winds or the storms that come in, as long as faith has his eyes on fact, he will stay on that wall. But the moment faith takes his eyes off of fact, and begin to look back at feeling is the moment you lose balance and fall. God with us is a fact. You might not feel it in the valley of distress. Look at me. You might not feel God with you in the valley of depression. Some of you are struggling with depression. You don't say, God's with me here. I don't feel that. And I'm saying, God is right there with you in the valley. The good shepherd walks us through the valley of distress, the valley of affliction. He's right there with you. When you think everybody is against you, the good shepherd is with his sheep through the valley. Now, from a perspective of sheep, going through a valley of the shadow of death, of course, on the edge of every one of those valleys, of course, were the predators watching, staring, waiting to pick a sheep off, a wolf, a bear, a lion. Yet the shepherd with the sheep and the sheep would feel secure with his presence. They had an awareness of his thereness, And they were able to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, this is often taught that the valley of the shadow of death is an isolated circumstance. And it's true. This verse is quoted at the bedside of individuals who are about to pass away. And it brings them comfort. They're at the valley of the shadow of death. But I see the valley of the shadow of death as all of life's circumstances. In other words, that which remains upon the believer is nothing but the shadow of death. Because Jesus Christ took the reality of death head on, leaving in its place nothing but the shadow. In other words, a shadow of a dog's bark can't bite. The shadow of a sword can't cut. So for the believer, why do we fear the shadow of death? When the shepherd is with us and the shepherd took the reality of death head on on the cross and then his rod and his staff, they comfort. That's the other qualifier. Remember those instruments I talked about? The rod was often used for protection, like David in the Old Testament fending off a lion and a bear that came for his sheep. A rod would be used as a club. A rod at times was used as correction. That staff, of course, was used for direction. Like I said, the sheep would walk so close to an edge and go right over, so the shepherd would use the staff and that crook or that hook to actually push them back onto the path. And at times, we don't even see what lies ahead, the harm, the danger, and we feel that hook pull us back. Sometimes it comes by mom and dad's instructions, reprimands from a youth group leader's instructions and reprimands. Hey, I noticed this type of behavior in you. You're getting too close to that precipice, that wall, and it's the crook that brings us back. We could fight it or we could actually go with it. It's always for our good. The Lord chastens or chastens or disciplines those he loves the shepherd would discipline his sheep. The sheep would be so acquainted with the shepherd. The sheep would begin to trust the voice of the shepherd. The, the sheep would be secure in the shepherd's presence for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Let's go from the top down again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. The green pastures are the place of provisions, provisions, God has you exactly where he needs you. He leads me beside the still waters. The still waters are the waters of rest. Be still, O my soul, and know that I am God. He restores. He replenishes. He brings back the soul to proper standing and order. I begin to develop habits of righteousness for his namesake. The more I spend time with him, the more I become like him. And it's inevitable to enter into a valley of affliction, distress, a valley that's called the shadow of death. However, when I have an awareness of his thereness When he is with me, I fear no evil. Evil's there, but I don't let the evil cause me to fear. God has not given us a what? Spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of love, sound mind. Finally, those instruments he uses for correction, protection, and direction, his rod and his staff They are comforting. Listen to me. Last thing I'll say. God will never pressure you with condemnation. If it's condemning, it's not of God. That's the enemy's tactic to make you feel condemned. That might even be your own conscience condemning you. John would say that God's bigger than that. God is bigger than the conscience that condemns you. God uses compassion. God uses gentleness and love. When Jesus had come to me, he was opening up his arms to all humanity. Then the select choice sheep who hear his voice would be the ones that responded. So we're in verse 4. We're going to continue with verse 5 and 6 tomorrow morning, the conclusion of Psalm 23. Again, the whole purpose of doing this is so that you know more than Psalm 23 by memory, you begin to walk hand in hand with the shepherd of Psalm 23, intimately. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. I pray that our hearts have been opened to your word, to your instruction. Lord, that you've impressed upon our hearts, your love, that will remind us you truly do love us where we are, but you don't leave us the way you found us. You take us out of the mud and you draw us into your love. Thank you for placing us back on solid ground, that rock, your son Jesus, establishing our steps. We do claim we are sheep, dumb, docile, dependent, and delicate. Yet we are also saying you are our shepherd. You govern, you guide, you protect, and you provide. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.